everybody, and welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library, three games at a time. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them, and that is pretty much all you need to know. I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. We got a couple of games here today. We got three of them, in fact. We got three whole games. That's right. That's right. These aren't like weird half games or anything like that. Well, you can make an argument about... <laughs> oh, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there real darn quick, actually. We'll get there very quickly, yes. Three different games made by different people in different places. They are probably going to elicit at least somewhat different reactions from us. So uh, what have we got today? In the hopper today, we have got David Crane's Amazing Tennis, Desert Strike Return to the Gulf, and Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. All right, folks. Well, we are still deep in the month of October. We're going to be there for a little while longer yet. And uh, what do you say we just jump right into this and let's talk some tennis? Yeah, it's time for talking tennis. Talking so many things on this show. Uh, this time it's tennis. David Crane's amazing tennis, uh, to be precise. Do you want to tell us a little bit about David Crane and the creation of this game before we get started talking about the game itself? Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about David Crane, and then we will talk about the amazing tennis, which, uh, spoiler alert, I don't find all that amazing. Looking at the box, you see David Crane's Amazing Tennis. Who would you assume David Crane is? Well, I would assume he's a famous tennis player, and since I don't really know very much about, I would have no reason to think he's not the player that they've licensed for this game uh, to give it some some credibility as a tennis simulation. Am I wrong? Well, guess what? You thought wrongly, because Uh, David Crane is not a tennis player. He is the person who made this game. Well, then. David Crane is a guy with a pretty storied career in the early days of console video games. Uh, Unfortunately, this is far from his most ambitious work. So in the early 80s, Crane worked for Activision, which some consider the first big-name third-party software developer. Crane worked on titles like Dragster, Ghostbusters, and Little Computer People. But Crane's biggest game while at Activision, and arguably the most important game to his name, was a little game called Pitfall. Maybe you've heard of that one. Ooh, I think I have heard of that one. Uh, Some kind of Mayan adventure, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. In 1985, Crane left Activision when they brought in a new CEO named Bruce Davis. Bruce Davis wasn't a popular CEO, and Crane wouldn't be the only person to leave Activision around that time. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Fellow Activision refugee Gary Kitchen uh, from Gary Kitchen Super Battle Tank, we're going to be talking about him a couple times today, formed a new company called Absolute Entertainment and was uh, more than happy to bring Crane aboard. While at Absolute, Crane would create A Boy and His Blob on the NES and this game on the Super NES, among a few others. Absolute wouldn't be long for the world, though. Uh, In an interview with Frank Cifaldi, then of Game of Sutra, in 2005, Crane blames the company's eventual demise with the narrow profit margins for game developers, especially where companies like Nintendo were concerned. Uh, due to Nintendo's closed system, all developers hoping to make games for the system would have to purchase the carts from Nintendo themselves. There was no other option for game cart manufacturing. There was little margin for meager profit by the time that the game would go to retail, and if retailers couldn't sell them, it was usually assumed that the developers would buy those carts back, meaning that any profits might have been eaten up by that. 
Yeah, incidentally, that is one of the many reasons why uh, Nintendo's sort of uh, hegemony over the games industry did start to crumble as soon as there were other viable options. Because, uh, yeah, the closed system did work for, for, for some purposes, but largely it did serve Nintendo uh, above any of its licensees. And any small developer would have had a real hell of a time trying Ooh, to yeah. eke out a living in that environment. So kind of scummy on Nintendo's part there. Seal of quality, folks seal of quality (laughs) right crane and kitchen though would continue working together at a company called skyworks working on smaller projects after absolute's demise which i guess is about as happy an ending as we tend to get in this industry when you think about it yeah you know they decided to stay in the industry which you know is uh is something well, I don't. I don't even know if like Skyworks is a game company or if they just make other oh, okay. software. I actually sure. uh, did not look that up, but you know, they're they're still out there and still making money. I guess so. All right, hey. well, well, good for good for them. Yeah. Yeah, you alluded to this uh, earlier, but uh, I I also do not think this is uh, a good game. I would not say I think this is a good game. I wouldn't say it's a good game either. The game is very limited, first of all. There's really only the options to do one player or two player, and that's kind of it, really. I mean, there's like a a couple other things, like you can change the the court type that you're on. Yes. um, You know, which I think is a pretty, probably a pretty standard option for a tennis game to have. (laughs) Yeah, I, I guess that more or less is it. There's not a ton to say about this one. You can play against an opponent that's either computer controlled or or that's a another human. There's a small handful of other players that you can play against, but the first player I believe is always playing as the same character, which is also really weird for a sports game of this vintage. I mean, even Super Bowling at yeah. least let you select between a boy or a girl. Right, yeah. This game gives you nothing. And it's, this is especially disappointing for a sport that historically has been one of the few sports that people will pay to watch women play. To completely leave them out here sucks. And if you look at this in comparison to Super Tennis, that had a whole roster of of male and female players you could choose, uh, mm-hmm. characters you could choose. This game, I think, tries to have a very cinematic style of presentation. You know, the camera angle is positioned right behind the court so that you have, like, a full-on view from the back of your tennis player all the way to the other side where the other player is. This game does, like, kind of slow-motion replays. The animation, I think, is good. There's a lot of detail on the movement of these big sprites, and the Mode 7 uh, effect is used used pretty effectively to give some depth to the play field. But I also think that that choice of perspective really limits the gameplay in a pretty bad way. Yeah, if you're the player that's right in front of the camera, you don't even get to see the entire width of the court on your side. So it's possible for the ball to fly in a direction, leaving you completely off camera to you know try and run after it. I think that they really wanted this to be sort of like the realistic tennis game. Yeah. I feel like especially games of this vintage, when there was sort of this push for realism, it often came at the expense of 
intuitive play mechanics and for I mean, sure, in this yeah. case uh, it came at, at the expense of options as well yeah the controls in this are uh i i found very hard to to really get a handle on there's a few different kinds of swings you can do and it's honestly there's there's enough granularity in how you can perform those swings that i frankly found it pretty hard to even serve the ball in this game reliably oh yeah you know there was just so much delay on everything that i think was supposed to increase the feel of like realism it was really hard to know when i was lining anything up correctly and i can't even count how many times i just missed the ball or, or hit it right into the net because i yeah I, I got something a little bit off yeah i think it during my time playing the game like i probably whiffed the ball more often than i actually hit it when serving i think this would have really benefited by automating a little bit more of that and you know making things feel even if they were still going for a kind of realistic feel there's a way you can do that while still making the game just reliably playable i found myself just frustrated more often than not with this another thing that i I really don't like about this game for the purposes of talking about it on this podcast is that there is no music that plays during the gameplay so the soundtrack is completely limited which means if i need too many music breaks during this segment i'm gonna have to use the same piece of music and i hate doing that you know it's talking about sound the sound effects in this game are good you know there's some voice samples there's some good ball hitting the the racket sounds you know all of that stuff is is good but it's just really not enough everything in this feels like kind of weirdly cold and barren for it which is funny because it's a very bright and colorful game um, really the only nice things i can say about the game are that the sound effects are really good like you were saying when you hit the ball against the back wall it really sounds like a tennis ball hitting like a chain link fence it's very impressive that and the one character that you have to play as if you're a player one has a very great jacket and i want that jacket it is a good jacket uh it is some peak early 90s sports fashion for sure it's like a white windbreaker jacket that just looks like purple paint just hit you in the shoulder and just splattered down across your body it's just really cool looking and, and yep. i need to find that windbreaker find it steal it yes make it yours you know, I was thinking about this earlier today, too, and, and this is speculation on my part here, but you've got him putting his name on this game. Gary Kitchen put his name on Super Battle Tank, even though these were not necessarily household names. Having been former Activision employees back in the Atari era when Activision wasn't allowing their employees to put their names on their games and weren't allowing for credits of any kind out of fear that headhunters from other companies would swoop in and pick them up. That maybe like now free from Activision, they were just like, yeah, we're doing things differently. The people who make our games, they get their names right on the box. We're not even dealing with credits. You just have it right on the box. There you go. I, you know, with that mindset, it makes more sense why somebody like Gary Kitchen would have his name prominently featured in the title of the game, uh, Gary Kitchen Super Battle Tank. So People should get credited for their work, even when the work is, you know... Not not that great, like uh, like David Crane's uh, Amazing Tennis. Yeah, so. well, I mean, you know, really, like, in a better world, David Crane would have had his name on Pitfall, and, you know, he would be known for sure. that. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, again, that was an absolutely noteworthy game back in the day. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. With all of that out of the way, then, should we head over to the list and see where this one goes? Yeah, let's serve it over the net, right onto the list, wherever it's going to go. So we've got Super Tennis at number 54, 
and I don't think this game touches that one. No, sir. I don't think so at all. Uh, I think we should look much, much lower on the list than that. In fact, I would say we probably want to go below Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank, War in the it's Gulf. It's so funny. I uh, was at number 76. I was absolutely thinking the same thing of like comparing these two, even though they have nothing in common, just because they're both <laughs> the, the absolute games. Yeah, right. But yeah, no, I completely agree. I think Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank is doing what it's trying to accomplish way better than this game is. It's a little trickier for me to figure out exactly where I would place this one. Mm-hmm. Maybe somewhere around uh, George Foreman's KO Boxing uh, at number 81. Yeah, George Foreman's KO Boxing was pretty awful. I mean, at the very least, like David Crane's Amazing Tennis looks better than George Foreman's box. George Foreman's does bo- look boxing better. is just like a really—it's a really ugly game. It's like, it's like somebody who's never known joy decided <laughs> to remake Punch Out. Yeah, I was going to say like uh, it's, is, a, it's is, a really is what, that one. dark and dour looking game. It certainly looks better than that. George Foreman's KO boxing was probably more functional as a game, but it also wasn't very fun either. I mean, Super Tennis didn't let me pause the game and hit a button to insta win. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. That was actually a, a good thing in in George Foreman's case. Okay, so I'm, I was thinking like it's tough to decide if this goes above or below George Foreman's KO Boxing. I would say Home Alone 2 is definitely the ceiling for this. I think Home Alone 2 is a better game. Yeah, I agree. But looking below at number 82 with Space Football 1-on-1, I'm almost willing to give that one the edge over Amazing Tennis, to be honest with you. I agree. I think I just found Space Football 1-on-1 more interesting at the very least. Even though it was sort of like really strange to look at and hard to figure out what was going on, I kind of wanted to put a little bit more energy into figuring that one out. Than, than I really did with, with this game. It, it's certainly more ambitious, if nothing else. So yeah, I, I, I would say probably I would give the edge to Space Football over Amazing Tennis as well. Yeah, so that would put us down at number 83, where we've got Thunder Spirits right now. And right below that, we've got WWF Super WrestleMania, which I still find like incoherent. So I would say that that's the floor. This is a better game than WWF Super WrestleMania, for sure. I have to admit, I don't really remember Thunder Spirits all that well at this point. Neither do I. I I know it was a shooter. That's all I remember. Was that a helicopter shooter? Wow, that's embarrassing uh, that I don't actually (laughs) remember what this game was that we placed really low on the list. I mean, like, is it is it that embarrassing or is it just sort of testament to how many of these the stupid unremarkability. games are on the freaking system at this point? Yeah, probably I would feel comfortable at the very least putting this one right above WWF Super WrestleMania because I can say for sure that I don't think that David Crane's Amazing Tennis is a worse game than that. I don't think a game that we can't even remember earns it the benefit of the doubt, though. Like, <laughs> that's a good I, I no. That's a, that's a good point. The fact that it's just like a black yeah. hole in both of our minds uh, probably means that that it's it's not worth that that level of consideration. Let me let yeah. me try to look up Thunder Spirits really quick and see if the screenshots drop okay. my memory at all. Okay. This was the one that came out on the Genesis first and was like mostly known as a Genesis shooter. Oh, yeah. Okay. This one did have that pretty interesting art style that probably worked better on the Genesis. Okay, so so now that I remember it, I kind of feel like David Crane's Amazing Tennis can go below it. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I now that I remember it, I I agree. Okay. Let's put it below and make it our new number 84 game. Right above WWF Super WrestleMania. So there we go. New number 84, David Crane's Amazing Tennis. 
Not all that amazing. Again, David Crane should be known better for, you know, things like A Boy in His Blob and Pitfall. You know, every, everybody has off days. Instead of just saying, oh, that David Crane sure made a bad game, let's let's reflect on the good instead. That's what I choose to do. Yeah, I think that's a good policy. And so what do you say we move on uh, and uh, let's, uh, let's, let's go overseas. Let's return to the Gulf. For a little bit of desert strike. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh no, I, I hear the politics alarm going off already. Um, oh no, the baby, it's crying. Okay, alright, so we're going to talk politics a little bit here, but not quite to the extent that I was thinking. We touched on this when we talked about Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank back in the day. Uh, Again, that one just keeps coming up today. So the other day, I went down to my local retro shop. I've got a nice little store that specializes in retro things, and they have a lot of, um, I think they call it new old stock or old new stock. Things that basically, you know, are unopened, but are quite old. And uh, they've got a lot of trading cards there. Uh, that are unopened packs, and one of the trading cards they've got... Everything had a trading card back in the day. Friggin' ALF. It's really true. MASH, American Gladiators, Nancy Kerrigan. (laughs) Yeah. All of these and more can be purchased as trading cards from the Retro Emporium in Kent, Washington. So shout-outs to them. So what I've got here is a pack of Desert Storm trading cards. So I'm opening this up here, like this game that we're going to be talking about. These are not quite as egregious as I thought they would be. It's mostly just showing off, like, military hardware. Like, here's an F-11-7A stealth fighter. The uh, Canadian Air Force CF-18. The uh, M1 Abrams tank. So, you know, just kind of showing off stuff like that. But it is still really weird to me just how consumerized this was so soon after the actual war happened. I have very vivid memories of being in elementary school. Now, I definitely remember like a a part of the day sort of being about talking about what was going on in the Gulf because some of my classmates had either a parent or an older sibling who was in the military and deployed. And there was real concern for those students, obviously, that their family member might not be coming back. Uh, To my knowledge, all of them did, thankfully. You know, this was something that weighed heavily on a lot of kids' minds. This was something that was very personal to a lot of people. And again, this is something that could have taken family members from children, you know, just a year prior that is sort of being, you know, sold and commodified like this. It's it's just such a weird thing. Most wars generate propaganda around them. Like they generate, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. things to kind of keep the people that that, that are you know, part of the the civilian population kind of like emotionally invested in the conflict that the country's military is involved in, you know, like World War II propaganda and stuff. You know, we, we all know about that. We've all seen that stuff. But the thing that's super weird uh, that is kind of hard to express about the marketing around the Gulf War is that it really did feel like marketing in a way that was very strange. Like, it was like, look at all this cool military hardware that America has. Isn't this awesome? Like, there was no sense of, you know, like a moral imperative behind this thing, as far as I could tell. It was just like, this is a thing you should be excited about and you know, please buy these trading cards. It's weirder than I think the way a lot of other other wars were handled in kind of the the American public it really consciousness. Did feel like you know marketing executives just looking at a war and thinking, yeah, I can make toys out of this. Like it's it's so bizarre to me. 
Like, like almost more like it was like a fun TV show for everybody right. than, than an actual thing that was happening. And that sort of informs our reaction to things like, for example, Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank, War in the Gulf. I think that both of us came to this game uh, expecting to be probably more grossed out by it than we were. Just because the fact that that this game is attempting to play in that space is is extremely fraught in the first place. But the way this is done didn't really hit that level of reality in a way that I was sort of worried it would. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to pat them on the back too much. My big thing is that like, I, I read something somewhere where the makers of this game were surprised when it was being uh, called by the news media a game about the Gulf War, which... I mean, you are so close to that that you don't get to be surprised about that. And honestly, like, I don't even buy that. I think that that's being incredibly disingenuous. You know, they used sort of the excuse that this game was in production for a while before the Gulf War even happened. And that may be true, but it doesn't mean that they couldn't have put two and two together and think, thought, oh, man, this game about using military hardware to blow up in the middle east uh sure is isn't uh gonna gonna raise any eyebrows there is no way somebody could be surprised to have this compared to the actual real military conflict that's happening So we, we will leave the politics behind for now because really what the game is trying to do is uh, instead of actually claiming to be a specific battle or engagement in the actual Gulf War, this is returning to the Gulf after a apparently Saturday morning cartoon villain takes over an Arab emirate with aspirations to start World yes. War Three. <laughs> so, um, yeah, again, you know, like I appreciate that they were trying to sidestep the thing. I still think, you know. Again, when you're close enough that that you don't get to be surprised when people make those connections. But I am happy that they weren't actually doing that. It it does make this somewhat easier to take. I mean, it, it feels more like kind of the the general grossness that I feel whenever I, I play like a Tom Clancy game or something, rather than like if I was playing like an America's Army game, which uh, yeah. I ain't touching yeah, those. No. Yeah. Me neither. But you know, <laughs> yeah. like, Tom Clancy is a really good comparison to make here because it's sort of taking a recent military engagement and sort of fictionalizing it in a way to make it a little bit more palatable and to make the villains much more clear, you know, um, to make everything yeah, much yeah. less ambiguous than actual war tends to be a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm, uh, that's, just, that's as far as I'm going to go here. So uh, you can turn off the po- okay, well, turn off that politics we- alarm now. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I hope that wasn't playing this whole no, no, time. No, no, thing, uh, that would be that no. would be rough. Wow. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, so so you want to talk uh, talk about the production of this one before we talk about the game? Uh, it's kind of an interesting background, actually. Yeah, it is. So uh, the Strike series, of which this is the first, comes to us courtesy of EA and was created by Mike Posen, or maybe Posen? No, I think it's Posen. Uh, Mike first joined EA in 1984 when the company was interested in a project that Mike had been working on with a small company of his own that he founded in 1977. 
it was early days for consumer PCs, and Mike had this idea of creating a personal information management program for those early PCs. And EA saw this and kind of felt like this could maybe be their answer to the print software that was being released by Broderbund and was very successful. I thought that you know maybe they could get into the PC software market and, and make a killing the same way Broderbund had. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, EA did not see the success that they were hoping for with the product. Uh, Posen was let go, but it wouldn't be the end of his involvement with the company. Uh, He started working on a program for the Amiga called Deluxe Video, uh, which scored him a publishing deal with EA. And uh, post-Video Deluxe, Posen had been in talks to develop a flight simulator for IBM, simply called Fly, but uh, if you'll pardon the pun, it never got off the ground. (laughs) Uh, still eager to make something of the idea, he spoke with Trip Hawkins over at EA. And if you listen to our episode where we talked about John Madden football, you might remember Trip Hawkins. From that conversation, Trip actually started giving him the idea of revolving the game around a helicopter, referencing games like uh, Choplifter. Apparently, that resonated with Mike because a few years later, we get Desert Strike. So uh, Posen actually wasn't a huge fan of video games when he was making this. Uh, He felt that they were too linear. He wanted to make something uh, more akin to a sandbox. Originally, Posen wanted to actually give the player a lot more freedom to screw things up. And uh, EA kind of reined in a little bit of that. And I think that the back and forth on that actually works. I think that Posen got his way enough that the game does feel very open-ended without feeling so open-ended that I feel like I can just be completely lost with the game. I think that there actually is a good balance here between something that's sort of very pick-up-and-play and approachable and also something that has uh, a little bit more depth and a little bit more room for you to be sort of freewheeling with uh, with the setup. We should talk about what this game actually is, because it's maybe a little different than than it might sound if you just say, oh yeah, it's a helicopter game uh, where you, you blow stuff up in the Middle East. This game is sort of like an early open-world action game. You have a series of objectives in a open play field that you can explore at your leisure in your helicopter. There's four scenarios in the game, and the first one has four objectives. Uh, Blow up some radio towers, blow up an airfield, blow up uh, a base, right? Something like that, yeah. And also find a like secret agent that is trapped behind enemy lines and rescue him. Your helicopter has uh, limited ammunition and fuel, and you can pick up more at various points around the map. Uh, you can also, as sort of a side activity, rescue additional soldiers that are trapped behind enemy lines. Basically, as long as you you end up accomplishing these objectives, you're good. So you do have that freedom, which is sort of unusual for a game of this time period, uh, to, to kind of approach this stuff however you want. And the helicopter that you're flying has a few different weapons. It's got a gun, it's got a missile, and it kind of has a bit of momentum when it moves, so... So you can hover in place and move with sort of like essentially like tank controls where you press left or right to sort of spin and uh, up and down to to move forward and back in whatever relative direction you're facing. But overall, it's it's pretty maneuverable. So and actually on the subject of the game's controls, there's actually several control options. And this is another area where Posen and EA had some back and forth that ultimately ended in this sort of
sort of compromise. You can change the control scheme so that it isn't the almost Resident Evil-like tank controls. And also, just in case we didn't make it clear, uh, the game does take place from a top-down sort of isometric perspective. I think it's sort of isometric, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually need to learn those terms better because I... I just found out recently that isometric doesn't quite mean what I thought it did. <laughs> ah, okay. You can either do the the sort of tank controls, you can do the tank controls without the momentum, or you can just do controls where up means you're going up, right means you're going right, it, it, you know, from your perspective as the player. Which, you know, I, I think, again, you know, a lot of people online, when I was reading some facts on this game, seem to prefer just the straight up is up, left is left kind of control scheme. But I think it's really cool that they added those as options. And I, I think it's, again, a, a time where I'm, I'm glad that Poston got reined in a little bit and that that compromise was made so that people can kind of select how they want to play. fun to play and I, w- I would say in some ways this almost feels like you're controlling one extremely powerful hero unit on like an RTS map like somebody came in and put down all the stuff for like a uh, command and conquer map and then just gave you direct control over a very powerful helicopter and let you kind of go around and and mess it up it's it's pretty fun to play, pretty satisfying, and once you kind of learn what the limitations of the helicopter are in like a combat engagement, you can really approach the objectives in whatever way sort of makes sense to you. Yeah, another thing this game's got going for it is it's got sort of like a side quest built into it. At the very beginning of the game, you also get to select who your co-pilot's going to be, and this person is going to affect how accurate your guns are. It's also going to affect how fast the winch, that is to say the, the ladder that deploys to pick up either POWs or consumable items like fuel and things like that. It's a kind of a neat mechanic that, you know, you've got these different people to choose from, so you can kind of decide what's more important to you. There is one person who's pretty much good at everything, but he is missing behind enemy lines somewhere as you start the game. So if you find him and rescue him, you'll have him available to you later on, and you can use this kind of super co-pilot who's going to, you know, increase the accuracy of your weapons and help you pick up things and people faster. That's really cool. Despite... What this game is about being somewhat unsavory, I I think this is a really strong game. And this started out as a Genesis game. I can see why this was ported over to the Super NES as quickly as it was. This was ported to just about everything, really. This was a big success, yeah. Yeah, no, this is, this is a good game. And I see also why this kind of launched a series, because you can definitely see things here that you would want to build on. And this is a formula that you could repeat in different settings and add more stuff to there's things about it that like uh, so kind of like actually what we were talking about with uh with David Crane's Amazing Tennis no background music during the actual gameplay here which you know I know isn't actually that uncommon for self-directed open world games but it does kind of get a little grating eventually I think given that these levels can take you know upwards of half an hour to complete despite the fact that this is a pretty open-ended game Ultimately, I do feel like you're kind of just doing variations of the same thing and frankly, not that different of maps for any of the levels. 
over and over again. So I think it's it's a strong concept for a game, but I think it maybe is actually a little more limited in scope than it first appears. I don't think I've got too much else to say about this one, do you? I like the graphics. I like how there's a slightly toy or like model look to the helicopter that I think is pretty neat. I don't really have anything else to say about it either. So I guess we should go ahead and look over at the list and see where we're going to land this bird on the yeah. list. And somewhat ironically, you know, this has maybe more in common with Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank, but I also feel like it doesn't come anywhere close to it. I feel like this is a much better game than Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank. I agree with that, uh, for sure. So I'm trying to find another game to kind of compare this to. Do you have one? This is a weird comparison, and I think probably this game could could go down from here, but I almost feel like Populous is a good comparison for this. Populous, let's see. That's oh, that's all the way up at 35. Wow. I, I don't know that I think this game is anywhere near as good as that, but I do think that that's a decent place to start a conversation about it. Because I feel like that's also a game where it introduces some very new concepts that I haven't really seen on, on this system before, certainly. And, you know, it, it has a lot of possible games gameplay here but maybe not quite as much as you'd actually want to play you know i mean just as like a personal preference like i am not a fan of military stuff even divorced from the politics i just kind of find them boring on a personal level i do agree with that i think that the gameplay concept here is strong enough to override some of that for me i think so too and and i definitely think that that's just a, a me preference i'm not you know trying to use that as any objective measure of the game's quality or anything like that I don't know. I mean, actually, you know, because now that you mention it, I do think that maybe I would probably play this again before playing Super Smash TV again, because as is, is interesting as that game was, it, on the Super Nintendo, it's it's pretty lacking. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, is that I also think that Desert Strike actually works well as a Super Nintendo game, which you didn't really talk about that much, but I think it is well-suited to this controller. It works on this system you know, pretty effectively. Yeah, I think I would feel good about putting it right below Populous. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's good. Kind of didn't expect before I started talking for it to go this high. But uh, yeah, for our new number 36 game, Desert Strike Return to the Gulf. Yeah, I definitely didn't think it would be going as high as, as 36 either when we started this. But because w- once you said Populous, I immediately thought, no, it's not hanging that high. But really, as I looked at what was below it, I just kind of thought, well, actually, yeah, no, this seems about right. Well, we got one more game to talk about today. This one is one that I have a, a bit of a personal connection to. Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. So I don't have quite as much history on this game as I did the other two. Basically, what we are looking at here is the game that America got instead of Final Fantasy V, which I guess would have been Final Fantasy III had we actually gotten it over here, but we didn't. Squaresoft was doing pretty well with the Final Fantasy brand, especially in Japan, where those games were selling like hotcakes. But unfortunately, the sales weren't quite as strong on the U.S. side as they were hoping. RPGs in general weren't really taking off in the West the same way they were in Japan. There were a couple of theories around this. Square felt that maybe the systems involved in Final Fantasy were too complex for American gamers, that American gamers who were playing things on the Super Nintendo skewed a bit younger than Japanese gamers. This is why they decided to make Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, which was going to be a Final Fantasy game aimed squarely at 
onboarding American gamers into the RPG genre. It would be a more simple game, and it's also a much, much easier game. I think that Square needed to decouple the concepts of complexity and difficulty. What we're seeing here is a game that has some simple mechanics to it, which in some cases I think really work to the game's benefit and really make for a fascinating game. But you also have a game that is not challenging at all. It is incredibly easy, uh, almost to the point where a lot of the tedium that they try to remove from the game by way of making it less complex just gets added right back in by the fact that the game just becomes an exercise in pressing the attack button over and over again to defeat the enemies until they're gone and then proceeding. One of the things that's very different about this game versus uh, any kind of traditional Final Fantasy game, there's no random encounters in this. All monsters are visible in dungeons and they don't even move. They're just stationary. This is in some ways pretty useful because it means you're not just getting into a random encounter every five steps, you know, without kind of knowing exactly when one's going to hit. But it also means that clearing out an area of monsters is really just sort of like checking boxes, especially since, like you said, there's not a lot of challenge at all to the combat in this. Monsters do have various strengths and weaknesses to different uh, weapons that you can have, but for the most part, that just doesn't matter. So one of the things they did in this to try to, I think, make everything very straightforward for this imagined sort of new player who's coming into this without ever having played this kind of game before is there's not really any kind of exploration on the world map in this game. What there is essentially is something that uh, I guess you could say it's it's almost more like the, the map in like Super Mario World. Yeah, I'd say it's almost exactly like that, yeah. Where you move from point of interest to point of interest as you open them up. So you're on the map of the forest and you press right and you go to the town that that's to the east and you know you need to go to the the sand dungeon so you press up and along the way instead of there being monsters to to fight just on the overworld there's this kind of stopping place with a a a set number of fights in it that you can activate if you want to essentially grind to level up and i really struggle to see how that is better than just having the uh, having monsters attack you while you're en route from place to place. I, I don't think the idea of having predetermined spaces where you battle is a bad idea, but just the fact that battles are so tedious and unchallenging make it just feel like grinding in a very unfun way. Even though, to be fair, you don't honest, you, you honestly don't even really need to grind. So, but yeah, it does kind of kill a lot of the fun that this sort of much simpler, zippier sort of game design could potentially have. So I don't want to be totally negative on this, because I do think there are some genuinely good things about this game. I think that a lot of the ideas they have that that kind of differentiate this from uh, a standard turn-based Japanese RPG are kind of interesting. Instead of going into a menu to equip various weapons, you have several different weapons that you can switch between at will that may attack multiple enemies instead of just one, or may allow you to clear obstacles on the overworld. You know, almost a little Zelda-like, I guess. You know, there's definitely walls that you have to blow up with bombs and trees that you have to hit with an axe to pass through. The dungeons themselves are actually pretty fun. They they have some neat gimmicks in them. And even though the graphics are 
Uh, on the simple side for what we've seen on the Super Nintendo so far, they're charming. You know, the the enemy sprites actually were taken from one of the vaguely Final Fantasy-adjacent Game Boy games, Final Fantasy Legends, a.k.a. Saga series. And they have a lot of personality, even though they are a little bit more cartoony than you might expect from Final Fantasy monsters. Good music, you know... Uh, and even though the story is very basic, it is kind of charmingly self-aware in, in some places. So, you know, there's definitely good stuff here. But overall, this is a very, very simple game in a way that does become a tedious thing to play. It's also a pretty slight game from what I've read. Casual playthroughs of this game clock in at under 20 hours, and even completionist runs don't hit the 20-hour mark. So for a Final Fantasy game, it's very short. I don't have a problem with that so much. I do respect that they were trying to make something that would be more approachable, and I think in some ways it's a success, but I just wish that they didn't mistake more approachable for making it just so easy to the point that you know it almost bores one to tears you had kind of an interesting observation about this actually we were were talking about it before about kind of you know what this game feels like it's in line with this one sort of reminds me like certain aspects of it remind me of the east games and make it feel like it's of a kind with east three and lagoon which we've already played uh for the show they they all feel like they're kind of trying to do east by way of another game franchise like yeah east 3 kind of feels like east by way of castlevania and lagoon feels like east by way of legend of zelda and this feels like I mean, obviously east by way of final fantasy and the reason i say that is because you know you've got like the set armor and, and things like that that you're on a pretty straight upgrade path and, and there's only a few of them uh there's a rhythm to this kind of game that's sort of bouncing between towns and dungeons with very little in between and kind of this feel of like kind of a smooth curve of, of constantly getting stronger yeah there's also the fact that you can save anytime you want like that actually feels right to me as far as as what kind of game to really compare this to when trying to describe this to somebody have your hero character who's on kind of a very basic quest to retrieve five magic crystals and save the world. He's always paired up with a second party member that kind of rotates out as the story changes. And usually those party members will have weapon that's specific to them. Uh, you'll usually get uh, a weapon from them. All of that is is so kind of straightforward that it, it almost feels just like part of your character's progression instead of the kind of uh, sense of, of having a party of characters that you have to manage. You don't have to concern yourself with the other characters um, experience points. You don't have to concern yourself with even controlling the other character. If you don't want to, you can set them to be automatically controlled. If you, if you want, uh, I did like that. You can kind of switch that on the fly. You can switch between auto and manual controlled characters. You can switch your weapon on the fly too, just with the press of a button. Again, you know, some really neat stuff that keeps you from needing to go into menus to micromanage every little thing or, you know, to, to have to manage things that you will use a lot. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And I really like what this game was trying to go for. Really, I think it all just comes down to the, the battle system. I, it's all too easy. And if they had found a good balance of 
keeping things simple while still making the game engaging and challenging. I think this this could have really stood out as, a, as another great RPG on the system. Um, as it is, you know, I, I think a lot of people tend to regard this as sort of like the bad Final Fantasy or the the not actually Final Fantasy that's sort of the, the bad one on the SNES. And I, I think that's a little bit harsh, but I definitely see where people are coming from. It's It's got nowhere near the appeal of the other two Final Fantasy games on the system. I mentioned that I had a little bit of a personal connection to this game, uh, and that is because this was the the very first RPG I ever played. Uh, I had a friend who had a Super Nintendo, and I didn't have one. He brought this game over, and one of my strongest memories, actually, from my first sort of experiences with the Super Nintendo is uh, him asking me to put in my name at the start of the game, and then seeing that name pop up as the name of, of the character you play as, and thinking that was super cool, which is kind of a silly thing to say now, but hey, I was like seven years old or something, so, you know, but the point is, I kind of was this theoretical person who was completely new to this type of game, and I had a great time with this. I had never played one of these before, and I was very young, so the simplicity of it didn't really bother me at all, and thinking back on it now, the only things I really remember particularly well from from my time playing this game are you know kind of the experience of of going through the dungeons you know some of the music and the visuals uh i don't really remember anything about the the experience of like these battles or playing the game at all uh beyond just the fact that i was there doing this and it was cool and i think that makes sense because there's not really much to remember about how this game actually plays i feel like this in some ways did its job for me because it taught me that there was this type of game that I'd never heard of before, you know, that I really clicked with. I don't know if I would have had a lot of fondness for this if I had played other games first or if I'd been a little bit older. But hey, in the case of me, uh, this game hit its mark exactly the way that I guess it was supposed to. I don't really have anything else to say about this. Like, it was kind of fun revisiting it for, like, nostalgic reasons, but it it definitely is a game that I found kind of a a chore to play. I'm kind of with you there. I will say, like, given, you know, that this is my first time playing it and, you know, what I had already heard about it going into it, I was kind of expecting something a lot worse. But I I found something that, while, you know, like, I agree with you that it, it gets pretty tiresome after a few minutes that I respected a heck of a lot more than I thought I was going to. So on that note, you know, I was talking about how I think it's sort of a piece with Lagoon and East 3. And right now, East 3 wanders from East is at 21, and Lagoon is at number 48. I think it belongs somewhere between these, because I think it's a better game than Lagoon, Yeah, but I don't think it's a better game than East 3. How do you feel about that? I think I, I'm very much in agreement with you there. I think that it's a lot more playable than the Super Nintendo version of Lagoon. I don't think it really measures up to East 3, but I, I do think that those are a good ceiling and floor for the house that we are going to put this somewhere in. I'm almost thinking of like whittling it down on both ends here, because I'm looking at Draken, which is an incredibly opaque game, whereas, you know, like Final Fantasy Mystic Quest is almost too transparent. Yeah. I think I, I find Draken a more fascinating experiment. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. On the other hand, like I'm looking at something like number 46, Arcana, which is another RPG. I don't think it's nearly as 
fascinating or engaging as Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. Do you are you still with me on that? I am definitely still with you on that. And uh, frankly, Arcana made me kind of angry when I played it. Which you know, uh, if I have to choose a negative emotion, I probably would pick boredom over anger. Okay, fair enough. It, we're kind of zeroing in on a uh, a place for it. I am looking at the block of games from thirty eight to forty. Rampart, Final Fight, and Pilot Wings. And I feel like, to some extent, this feels like the right place to kind of try to find a spot for Mystic Quest. I don't think I like it as much as Rampart. Yeah. As janky as I found some things about Rampart on the Super Nintendo, I think that it's a more uh, it's a more engaging game than Mystic yeah. Quest. Final Fight, that's an interesting matchup. You know, I think I might actually give the edge to Mystic Quest over Final Fight, just because I do think there's more to enjoy in Mystic Quest than there is in the Super Nintendo version of Final Fight. Yeah, I think I'm okay with that. So right between Rampart and Final Fight is our new number 39. Yeah, not a bad showing for the game that, like you said, people tend to consider the worst Final Fantasy on the Super Nintendo. But I mean, honestly, like, if this is the worst Final Fantasy, that says a lot for Final Fantasy. It does, it does, yeah. Good job. Good job. So I guess that is uh, that is it for this episode. That's We did it. We explored these three games. We played them. We judged them harshly. And uh, that's, what we, that's what we say on the tin. That's what we're here to do. You know, I don't think we judged all these games too harshly. I don't think harshly. so either. Maybe David Crane's We, we judged that one pretty harshly, <laughs> but I think it was deserved. So y- Yes. Yeah, very much so. Let's look ahead and see what we're going to be up against next time. What do we have going on? I think on? we've got a real super episode next it's time. It's super from top to bottom from what I can see. So we've got Super Double Dragon. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. We've got Super Buster Brothers. All right. And Super Batter Ooh, Up. Uh, Another baseball game. It's been a while since we've had one. Let's so, see if this uh, is be finally the game that makes me not wish that baseball wasn't a thing anymore. Maybe this time. Maybe. We'll see. We hope you've enjoyed this time with us. We've enjoyed it with you. And uh, we will see you back here next time to talk about those games. Those super, super, super games. We sure will. So until next time, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. Thanks for listening and uh, play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. I got another <laughs> train coming. Oh, my God. How? That's like, it's like the fifth or sixth the third train one in yeah. ten minutes. Yeah, this is insane. One other thing I did want to mention is that, you know, because we do have, you know, Gary Crane's name right on David, the box. I was thinking about, oh, sorry, yeah, D- David Crane. Did I say yeah, Gary Crane? The, kind of the fusion, the Dragon Ball <laughs> Z fusion of David Crane and Gary Kitchen. That's what we had there. The, the Megazord of absolute That's entertainment right, yeah. employees. <laughs>